Well, let's begin this morning as we often do by reading our passage for today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 to 13 this morning, but let's begin by reading, starting at chapter 17 and verse 1. So Matthew 17, starting at verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands." Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Well, once again, we're in a text that we might not choose for ourselves. The first eight verses of Matthew 17 have a lot of appeal, but verses 9 to 13 are not as exciting, maybe at least for me. Once again, I think we need to remind ourselves that every word of God is inspired. And God doesn't waste words. And so we know that this text is here for a reason. Matthew included this for a reason as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we just have to look a little harder to understand what we should take away from a text like this. You know, in Matthew 16, 24 to 27, it was very obvious what we were supposed to do in response to what Jesus said. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and followed me. And then he explained in verses 25 to 27, it was, it was clear that, that it makes sense to follow Jesus because if we lose our life for his sake, we will find life. And even the whole world is not enough if we forfeit our soul. And in verse 27, we saw what the great promise we have of reward when Jesus returns. And in chapter 17, verses 1 to 8, we saw the glory of Jesus Christ on the mountain, and it confirmed for us His deity, and that He is the Messiah. And so there are texts that are are more directly applicable than others, but every text has something for us. Every word of God is inspired, and every word of God deserves to be heard. Our passage would have been important to Matthew's original audience. Because they would have had this question in their minds, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, then why didn't Elijah come first? Now, I would tend to think that 
that none of us ever wondered about Elijah and why he hasn't come yet to restore all things or or how Jesus could be the Messiah if we haven't seen Elijah. I would guess that most of us haven't ever thought about that, but Matthew's audience, they would have wondered about such things. I'm told that even to this day, some Jews leave an empty chair for Elijah at their Passover meal. They're, they're still, even to this day, they're waiting for Elijah to come before the coming of the Messiah. And that hope that they have on the appearing of Elijah comes from one of the final verses, or really the final verses of the Old Testament Scripture. And so I want you just to turn back to the, the book before Matthew in your Old Testament. Turn with me to Matthew, or sorry, turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament this morning, but Malachi chapter 4, we'll start reading in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." And so Malachi prophesied about the day of the Lord. And that day would be a day of judgment. And the language here is is very strong, really reminiscent of hell. It's going to be a day of judgment. And the wicked would be set ablaze. And on that day, Israel will be freed from the the oppression of their enemies, they're going to tread down the wicked. And it'll be a day of celebration for those who fear Yahweh. They're going to go out leaping like the calves from the stall. They're going to be celebrating. But on that day, evildoers and the arrogant are going to be judged. It's the day of judgment for them. And so this is the day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord is the day that the Lord takes the world back for himself. Now, sometimes scripture speaks about this as a single day, and other times it refers more to a a period of time, really, we might say just days or a length of time. But it's a day of judgment or a time of judgment for the world, but a day of salvation for the remnant of Israel. Now, most of Malachi condemns Israel for their sins. And so the question would be for the reader of Malachi, the question would, would be, how is Israel going to have anyone on the Lord's side on that day? And the answer comes in those final two verses that we just looked at. Elijah will come. The Lord is going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And Elijah is going to come and he's going to restore Israel. And notice there that he comes before the day of the Lord. And when he comes, there's going to be repentance. He is going to turn. That's the same word there used for repentance. There's going to be a turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Now, Matthew's readers would have wondered how it could be that the Messiah would come without a, a number of things. First of all, they'd be waiting for Israel's salvation. They'd be waiting for the destruction of Israel's enemies. They'd be waiting for the establishment. They'd be expecting an establishment of the kingdom where the Messiah is going to reign over David's throne. But even before all of that, they're waiting for the coming of Elijah to bring the nation to repentance. Now again, we might not have wondered about such things. But it's nonetheless important for us in in this sense. It it shows us that all of Scripture must be fulfilled. And what God has promised must come to pass. What God has spoken will be done. And on that basis, we have a lot that we can learn from a passage like this. It's going to remind us of God's faithfulness. That He is a God that is in control of the history of the world. That he holds the future in his hand. That he accomplishes his good pleasure. That no purpose of his can be thwarted. Now another thing that Matthew's readers would have, would have struggled with was this idea of a suffering Messiah. You know, the Jews seem to have really largely ignored those passages that taught about the Messiah's suffering or, or what they often would do with those passages that spoke about the suffering of the Messiah is they would, they would apply it to themselves and they would see themselves as those who would suffer, but never the Messiah. And so in their minds, as, as really we've already seen in the, in the minds of Jesus' disciples, they expected the, the Messiah to triumph, not to suffer. He would be the the one who conquers. He would certainly not die. And so Matthew's readers really need to to wrestle with these truths that the Messiah is going to be a little bit different than they thought and that the timing of the Messiah was going to be a little bit different than they thought. Now Jesus has been predicting his suffering really for the, the past number of verses starting in 1621, I think it was. And he's predicting his sufferings, and he, and he seems to take every opportunity to tell his disciples that he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem, and that he will rise from the dead. And so what we'll do is we're going to look at our text under just four simple headings today. We're going to see, first of all, the direction to secrecy in verse 9. Then we'll see the question about prophecy in verse 10. The restoration of Elijah in verse 11, and we're going to spend a lot of time looking at what what we would expect there. And then fourth, we'll see the persecution of John in verses 12 to 13. And these are going to help us understand where Jesus fits on the divine timeline. And we'll also, again, take some time to look at what the Old Testament teaches about Elijah, about the salvation of Israel, and about God's plan for the future. And so let's start with verse... 9. Again, we call this the direction to secrecy in verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
Now, this is the fifth time that Jesus commanded people not to tell of a miracle or to reveal who he is. And so if you went back to Matthew 8 and verse 4, you might remember that Jesus told the leper there, see to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so the healed leper was only to tell the priests. And then in Matthew 9 and verse 30, Jesus healed two blind men. And their eyes were opened, it says in verse 30, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Verse 31 says, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. In chapter 12 and verse 16, Jesus healed all of the many people that followed him and he ordered them not to make him known. And in that context, he had withdrawn from the Pharisees who had conspired against him to destroy him. And so it seems that Jesus did not want to be made known at that time because it was, it was too soon. It was too early in, in the timetable. Jesus was following the Father's plan, which was for him to die in Jerusalem on the third Passover of his ministry. And he didn't want to draw unnecessary attention or to have the crowds forcing him to be king before his time. Now, John's gospel even tells us of, of the crowds that, that, that tried to force Jesus to be king when he fed the 5,000. And so Jesus kept, or at least he tried to keep the word about who he was somewhat discreet. And everywhere he went, there was these large crowds that, that gathered around him and they brought the sick and he healed them all. And his miracles, they all proved that he was the Christ. He didn't, he didn't hide it. But neither did he go around telling everyone, I am the Messiah. And he forbid his disciples from telling anyone as well. You'll remember that if you just look at Matthew 16 and verse 20. Remember in in 1616, Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said in verse 20, after he affirmed Peter's understanding that yes, indeed, he was the Christ, he said in verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from then on, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Messiah must suffer before he would be glorified. And again, this was something that would have been very difficult for them to embrace, and where it says there that he strictly charged them, it's a, it's a strong warning there in verse 20. A very strong warning. The disciples had finally come to a true understanding of who he was, but he forbid them from telling others. Now in our text, which again is the fifth time that Jesus forbids this, this kind of communication, this open uh, proclamation of who he was, Jesus adds now, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the first time that Jesus adds an until. Earlier, he really couldn't add the until the Son of Man was raised because he only just began to teach them that he would suffer and die. And so we see that this secrecy is only a temporary thing in the ministry of our Lord. And eventually, they would proclaim him as the Messiah And that might remind us of Matthew chapter 10 and verse 26, where Jesus said, have no fear of them, 
For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And so the plan is for Jesus to be made known after he is raised from the dead. And his suffering and death would then already be complete and nothing would get in the way of, of that once it had already happened. And so there's this, this secrecy for the moment until Jesus suffers and dies. And then after that, there's going to be an open proclamation of his resurrection and the fact that he is the Messiah. And at that time, the disciples would receive the Holy Spirit and they would be his witnesses. And then they could tell all people that he was the Christ. And then they could speak of his transfiguration. You remember Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now when we turn to think about ourselves now, we recognize that we're on this side of that until. We not only have the liberty to tell people who Jesus is, we are his witnesses And Jesus has risen from the dead. And we have received the Holy Spirit if we have trusted in Christ. And our mission is to make disciples of all the nations. In every nation on earth to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ and to speak of the unsearchable riches of Christ. The Lord directs us not to secrecy, but to boldness. We're to proclaim what we hear from Jesus on the housetops, which means we're to proclaim it publicly, we're to proclaim it boldly, we're to proclaim confidently. We are the only people, if you think about it, we are the only people in the world who have the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And if we don't call the world to repent and to believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, then nobody will. And so there's really no other people in the world who have the opportunity to proclaim this message. And so we're in a very different position from the three who saw Jesus' glory on the mountain or from the twelve who were to tell nobody at that time. Our mission is to tell everybody and to serve the Lord as his witnesses. Now somehow this whole thing, this vision of Christ and his glory with the appearance of of Moses and Elijah brought a question to the disciples' minds. And so they ask in verse 10, then why do the scribes say that Elijah or that first Elijah must come? And this is number two in our outline. This is the question about prophecy in verse 10. The question about prophecy. And the question begins with an unexpected then. At least in the Greek text, it begins with a then. And I guess in the, in the ESV also, it begins with a then. I'm pretty sure the NASB translates the then a little bit later on because I keep saying it wrong in my mind, but it says there, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And that word then is often translated therefore, and it's a difficult therefore to understand what it's there for. It likely flows out of this whole experience on the mountain rather than than just what Jesus said in verse 9. They had this heavenly confirmation that Jesus was the Messiah, but the scribes say that the Messiah won't come until Elijah comes first. 
And so they're saying, you know, we, we know that you're the Messiah. We, we, we get that you're the, the Messiah, but, but why are you here before Elijah? In other words, they're having a, or they're seeing a chronological problem. There's, there's a, a problem with the timing. The timing is wrong in their mind. Another, another way to understand it is, is that, is to see this as a theological problem. And this would relate more to verse 9 and that, that Jesus would die. And, and in that case, the question would go something like this. If Elijah comes first and his mission is to, to turn people's hearts, how come you need to die? You know, if Elijah restores all things, as Jesus says in verse 11, then why would you have to suffer in a, in a restored Israel? The Messiah should, should prosper and, and conquer and do well. Now, I'm not exactly sure which way to take their question. Maybe they have both the timing and the theology in mind. But Jesus ends up answering both aspects of this question, whether it's the timing or the chronology. The disciples reference the scribes here, but it, it seems really that this is a question that they themselves had. And the question itself comes from Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which we read at the beginning. Again, Yahweh had said, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Now, perhaps the scribes were asking this of the disciples, but more likely the disciples here are, are referencing the scribe because the, the scribes were viewed as experts on interpreting the law and the prophets. And by pointing to the scribes, they can kind of bolster their own position with the scribes' authority. And that's their question based on Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And, and by the way, there, this is the, really the only place in the Old Testament that I'm aware of anyways that, that speaks about this coming of Elijah. So Malachi 4, 5, and 6 is really the passage. And so that was the question. Let's look now at the response of our Lord, and, and we'll see this response in two parts. First, we're going to see number three in our outline, the restoration of Elijah in verse 11, the restoration of Elijah, and we'll spend the most of our time here today. Look at verse 11. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Now, the first part of our Lord's answer affirms the scribe's interpretation of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Elijah does come. And Elijah uh, does come, that, that's, come is a present tense verb there. The Legacy Standard Bible and the New American Standard Bible translate it like this. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Elijah is coming. Elijah does come. And it's almost a futuristic present here. Elijah will come. It's not Elijah has come. That's what we're going to see in verse 12. This is Elijah really will come or is coming. And this coming is pointing to something future. Elijah is coming or he will come. And when Elijah does come, the text says he will restore all things. And restore there is in the future tense. This is something that is going to happen in the future from, I would say, from Matthew's perspective, from Jesus' perspective when he spoke it, but also even still from our perspective. This is a future thing. 
And the best way to understand this is to take it as it is. Jesus is agreeing with the scribes and with Malachi that there is a future coming of Elijah. And when Elijah comes, there will be a restoration of Israel. Again, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now this turning involves a national repentance of Israel. And the prophets, really almost every Old Testament prophet, looked forward to a day when Israel would be saved. Moses himself was the first to speak about this, and I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. So let's go to Deuteronomy 30, and we're going to look at a number of Old Testament texts, really starting with Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we're thinking about the restoration of Elijah. What is this restoration that Elijah is going to accomplish? Deuteronomy 30 is a very important prophetic text, if you want to think about it that way. I'll I'll start reading in verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children... And obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now this is a remarkable passage. Moses knows that Israel is going to disobey and be driven from the land, and they're going to receive the curses of chapter 27 and 28, which came before this, the blessing and the curses. But Moses predicts that a day when all of these things come upon you, that Israel, after all of those things came upon them, that Israel would return to the Lord. And notice there it says, you and your children, just like Elijah is going to bring this this kind of repentance to the people and their children. And they're going to return to the Lord and obey Him with all their heart and with all their soul. Now Israel was driven from the land and, and Judah was driven from the land as well and they did return under Ezra and Nehemiah, but they were still under foreign rule even up to Jesus' day. And even to this day, what God has promised in Deuteronomy chapter 30 has not happened. Even though Israel was now gathered back into their land, I think it was 1948, they, they still have never had this circumcision of their hearts where there's this, this national repentance that they love God with all their heart and all their soul. And that's really what verse 6 is. It's a promise of regeneration. Look at it again. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. 
And so God would circumcise their heart and their children's heart and cause them to obey. And this is what Israel really has never had in its history. In fact, in Deuteronomy 5.29, God said, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And so they were lacking this circumcised heart, and and thus, throughout their history, they were largely a disobedient people. But Deuteronomy 30 is a promise that one day the Lord would give them a new heart. And when that happens, they will be brought back to the land that they were promised. Look at verse 7, just continuing on. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now the prophets picked up on and expanded on these promises, especially verse 3 where the, the Lord spoke of restoring your fortunes and verse 6 which speaks about the circumcision of the heart. Now, it's actually quite a thing to do is just to do a word search on restore with the word fortunes. And I I did that this week, and I I don't even have time to go through them all, but I want to show you a sample of how the the prophets kind of picked up on this language and and what God had promised here, and they, they really carry it through the entire Old Testament. And to start with, let's go to the book of Jeremiah. Let's go to the book of uh, Jeremiah chapter We'll start in chapter 29. And we're just going to follow this promise of restored fortune, of a regathering of Israel, and of this promise of a a new heart, a circumcised heart. It's really the, the promise of the new covenant already starting in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But look at Jeremiah 29 starting in verse 12. And as we look at these passages, just I want you to notice the what the Lord promises around this idea of restoring your fortunes. And so Jeremiah 29, 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Look at Jeremiah 30 and then verse, starting at verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, for behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Look at Jeremiah 32 and verse, starting in verse 42. 
For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negeb, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Notice all the places that, that, that land is going to be bought and sold again when the Lord restores their fortunes. Look at now Jeremiah 33, and we'll start in verse 7. He says there, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Just pause there. Notice with this restoration, there's the forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness of rebellion against the Lord. Verse 9, And this city shall be to me a joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Continuing on in verse 10, Thus says the Lord, In the place of which you say it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of myrrh and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, For the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first says the Lord. Now, if you kind of just know where we are in Jeremiah 29 to 33, that's where the, we have this well-known promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 29 to 33, maybe even um, no, yeah, just Jeremiah 29 to 33. It's, it's called the book of consolation. It's a little section within Jeremiah. And that's where all of these promises are of the restoration of Israel. But the, the verse you probably know most well, or at least should know, is the new covenant promise just in this section here, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. And so go ahead and turn there with me. Jeremiah 31. 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
This is the promise of the new covenant and of the circumcised heart that we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, we often come to this passage and we think about it for ourselves, and I think we, we do so rightly. This is a passage that applies to us, but these promises are really for a restoration of Israel. This is to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, through the salvation of Jesus Christ, we're grafted into some of these blessings, like the forgiveness of our sins, but what Jeremiah is speaking of here, and what God is really promising here is that Israel and Judah would be saved at a future day as spoken about in Deuteronomy chapter 30 when the Lord restores their fortunes. The new covenant includes a new heart that obeys the Lord and trusts the Lord. And it's a covenant unlike the Mosaic law because God promises to forgive their sins and to to transform their hearts so that they love Him and worship Him. But we need to reckon with the fact that these verses speak to Israel and promise salvation and a regathering of Israel on that day. And so we're, we're looking at this re- restoration of fortunes. I want you to go to the book of Lamentations now, right after Jeremiah. The book of Lamentations, there's an interesting one in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Jeremiah says, or the Lord says through Jeremiah, what can I say for you? What can I say for you to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions, for they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. And so what we see here is that before the restoration, there's going to be an exposing of iniquity and a genuine turning from sin. But in Jeremiah's day, what was happening was false prophets comforted the people in their sins. And so Jeremiah is lamenting the fact that the prophets haven't confronted the people. And because they hadn't confronted the people, they're not going to expect this restoration that God had promised for the future. Let's go to another one. Let's go to the book of Ezekiel now. I want to turn to Ezekiel's New Covenant section which really starts, I think it's in verse 36, but we're going here to verse chapter 39. So we're going to Ezekiel 39, starting at verse 25. Ezekiel 39, starting with 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. 
I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Now there's two things I I want you to grab from this section here. First of all, when this restoration of fortunes happens, all of Israel will be gathered from the nations and they will dwell securely with none to make them afraid. And they will have no more enemies from this point on. And secondly, notice there that they will receive the Holy Spirit when I pour my Spirit upon the house of Israel. And this reference to the Spirit here, when this restoration of fortunes happens, reminds us of Ezekiel's new covenant passage in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse, I want to start reading in verse 22. So go back, look at Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. This is a longer section here, but just look at what it says about this restoration time. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, again, this is directed to Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And so they were exiled, and they have profaned his name among the nations. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no more famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the fields abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And I just wanted to pause here and just note that we're speaking here about literal grain. We're speaking about literal fruit in the land that God is going to give them. There's going to be this abundant harvest in this restoration, in this kingdom age is really what I think we're talking about here. Verse 31, Then I will remember, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited. The waste places be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by, and they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. 
Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord when I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. And so this is, again, one of these new covenant promises that that we rightly apply to ourselves, but the fullness of this involves a restoration of Israel to their land and a salvation of the nation. Now we'll go a little faster now, and let's just kind of flip through. Um, We're looking again at these verses that speak about the restoration of the fortunes of Israel. Hosea mentions it in Hosea 6.11. I'll just quote it for you. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. Now, the book of Joel refers to this restoration as well. I want you to turn to Joel, and we're going to kind of come back here a few times. So you might want to even kind of put your bookmark in Joel. Chapter 2, verse 21 Sorry, chapter 2, verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, we should just stop there and ask, where have we seen that before? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, that's the same wording that we saw in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. So there's going to be this darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Verse 1 of chapter 3 For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land." And so we see this mention of the valley of Jehoshaphat. We often think of this as, as Armageddon. There's going to be a judgment on the nations. There's going to be a, a time of great distress in the world. And, and when that happens, at that time, there's going to be this restoration of the fortunes of Israel. And those who escape are going to be saved. They're going to be called by the Lord. And they're going to call on the name of the Lord. And they shall be Saved, And so the remnant of Israel is going to be saved at that time. Well, Amos also speaks about it. And I don't know if you want to keep your, if you want to keep kind of flipping with me here, but Amos chapter nine says, behold, the, uh, sorry, I'm in chapter nine and verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grains, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make, they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted. And so there's a, an eternal planting that's going to happen in Israel of the people in their land. 
This is, again, kingdom language. There's going to be safety and security forever when the Lord restores the fortune of His people Israel. And so they shall never be again uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That was Amos 9, 13 to 15. Zephaniah chapter 2 says that the sea coasts shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Israel on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. Now this is the, the sea coast in Ashkelon, that's the Philistines' territory. And so the, the coastal land of the Philistines is finally going to belong to Israel, which didn't even belong to Israel even in Solomon's day. The last verse there, last part of verse 7, Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 7 says, For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. And then Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 19 says, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Verse 20, at that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And again, I would just remind us that this is still future today. We have never seen Israel own the land of the Philistines. We have never seen um, Israel as a, a nation that's renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth because we've never seen their fortunes restored as God has promised. This is something that's yet future. Well, with that, I've, I've shown you a lot here. We've seen the promise of a restored fortunes for Israel and for Judah and for the cities and for all that's involved. And, and there's many aspects that are involved in this thing. There, there's going to be a repentance of Israel. There's going to be a, a turning from sin in the nation. There's going to be salvation, regeneration, the forgiveness of sins. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And there's going to be this new desire within Israel to obey and to love the Lord your God and worship the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. And they're going to be gathered back. The whole nation, the whole country, the whole of Israel is going to be gathered back to their land. And they're going to overcome their enemies through the power of the Lord. And from that moment on, there's going to be a security there forever from into the kingdom and even into the eternal state. And so after a period of great difficulty and trial, which we call the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, Israel is going to be restored. And this period, again, can be linked with Malachi chapter 4 and 5, and the promise of Elijah. Again, Jeremiah 2.31 said that it was before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah before Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jeremiah 2.32 says that everyone who escapes Jerusalem or or from those survivors shall be some who call on the Lord for salvation. Again, Joel 2.32, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. 
And again, the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1 of Joel, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. And when we put this all together, we see that Elijah is going to be involved in the salvation of the remnant of Israel. And this is even confirmed in the New Testament. For one, our passage says that Elijah will come and that he will restore all things, like our passage is in the New Testament. But also, I want you to kind of turn with me now to Romans chapter 11, where we also see this promise reiterated. Romans chapter 11, Paul argument, Paul's argument here is that God has not rejected Israel. He has turned them over to disobedience until he saves the Gentiles. We even read about that a little bit in our scripture reading in chapter 15 today. But there's two parts to Paul's argument in, in Romans 11. First, look at verse 1 of chapter 11. I ask then, says Paul, has God rejected his people? And he's talking about Israel there. And he says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Skip down to verse 5. He says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so first, Paul's argument in Romans 11 that God has not rejected Israel is that, that God has not rejected Israel in that he reserves a remnant for himself who are saved by grace, people like Paul and people like those that God had, had saved in Elijah's day when there was the 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And so God saves individual Israelites just like he saves individual Gentiles in this age. But he has not saved the whole nation. And so there's a, a second part. Jump down to verse 25 of chapter 11. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Not all Israelites, but most Israelites have been hardened in their sin. And so there's this partial hardening that has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so God is going to save Gentiles while Israel is partially hardened in this age. But then look at what he says in verse 26. There's a second argument for why God has not rejected Israel. Paul sees a future salvation of the nation, just like we've seen in the Old Testament. Verse 26, And in that way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And Paul is here quoting from Isaiah 59 and 60. And in the context there of Isaiah 59 and 60, and you can turn there if you want. We're going to read from verse 21 in a minute. But in the context of Isaiah 59, Israel is sinful and they're disobedient. And so the Lord himself is going to take action. And he is the redeemer and he's the deliverer that is going to come to Zion. A deliverer in in our text, it says a deliverer will come from Zion. In Isaiah, it's this deliverer is going to come to Zion. He's going to come to Israel. 
And he gives them his spirit and they turn from their sin. And then this is the covenant. This is the new covenant that, that God is going to make with them at that time. This is Isaiah 59 verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And so there again, this promise of a new covenant of salvation, not only to the, the nation of Israel, but to their children, and not only for a time, but from that time forever. Now there's so much more that we could look at in the Old Testament, there's so many more promises. Our problem, at least in my mind, our problem is that we just don't know the Old Testament well enough to know what to expect. And these promises of a restoration of Israel and, and then through Israel, a restoration of all things, all of those kingdom promises through the Old Testament, you know, the lion eating uh, straw like the ox and all of that, all of the promise of abundant prosperity and all of those things that, that God is going to fulfill in the kingdom. All of these things are going to happen just as God planned and just as He said. And what we looked at just now, all of, all of these promises are going to be finalized with the return of Jesus the Messiah. And so the, the day of the Lord ends with the return of the Lord and the establishment of His kingdom. And so Elijah comes before, and at the end of the day of the Lord, the Lord Jesus comes, the Messiah comes, and then from then on, that, that kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth goes into the eternal state, and Israel and all of God's people will dwell secure from then and forever. And so Elijah comes first, and then the Messiah returns. And I believe that we should expect a literal return of Elijah. Now, some people debate that, but I think we should expect a literal return of the prophet Elijah. Now, as we think about these promises, I was going to take some time today and, and look at some of the promises about the first coming of the Messiah and show that, that they were all literally fulfilled. And in the same way, we should expect a literal fulfillment in the second coming of the Messiah of all of these promises. The Lord himself said that everything that was written about him and Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. But we really don't have much time left, and so we need to kind of bring this section to a close. And in closing this section, I just want to remind you that God is faithful and He will always fulfill His promises. He will always follow through on everything that He said. And we can rely 100% on every promise of God. Every word from the mouth of the Lord is sure. Now let's go back to our text. We've got one final point and we're going to just kind of really cover this quickly. We've seen the restoration of Elijah. Let's now look number four. Second thing that the Lord answers here is number four. The persecution of John in verses 12 and 13. Look at it again there. In contrast now, Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. 
Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And the Lord now switches to speak about John, and and he says that John is Elijah, that in a sense at least, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, they did not repent, and, and the word they there is just a vague reference to Israel and the leaders of Israel. And you, you might remember this if you turn back to Matthew, look at 11, 13, and 14. Jesus is speaking about John in the context there, and in verse 13 it says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so all of the prophecies, they, they went up to the time of John until John. And at the moment of John's preaching, there was a, a decision to make. Israel needed to recognize John and accept his message. And what did they need to do? They needed to repent, right? They needed to turn. They needed to, to, to respond to the preaching of this so-called Elijah who was to come. And if, Jesus says, if they were willing, then he was Elijah to come. Now, I think this is one of those divine ifs that's a little bit tricky to deal with. I I believe that there was a, a genuine offer of the kingdom to that generation of Israel on the basis of their acceptance of John's ministry. John had come, you remember, according to Luke 11 and verse 17, he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. I'm gonna, you can turn there if you want. I'm gonna read from Luke chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. This is the, the birth announcement of John the Baptist. And it says there, the angel speaking, I believe, it says that he will be great. John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah Just like you might remember how Elisha had a double portion of Elijah's spirit, but John was not Elijah. In John chapter 1 and verse 20, John is speaking, or it's speaking about John there, and, and it says he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And so John himself recognized that he was not Elijah. He had come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he was not a resurrected or a a Elijah descended from heaven. Another Elijah, most likely Elijah himself, will come, and he does come, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit will save Israel so that they do repent. Now I should at least tell you that there is one other way to understand all this, And that is to say that Elijah, or that John actually was Elijah. I almost feel like I shouldn't even tell you this, but there's this another view here, just so you know about it. That and and it goes like this: they they say that John actually was Elijah, and that he did kind of quote restore all things, but 
But when you think about it, nothing was actually restored, and, and so it didn't actually accomplish what God had said it would accomplish. And when John says that he's not Elijah, in that case, he just means that he's not literally the resurrected Elijah, but that he actually really was the Elijah of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. But I, I think it's much better to see uh, the, this the way that I've kind of showed you this morning, to see this literal fulfillment of all that God has promised, that it's going to happen, that, that Jesus, there was a, an Elijah that prepared for the first coming of the Lord, but there's a, a, a greater Elijah, probably the literal Elijah, who's going to come before the second coming of the Lord. And all of this happened because in God's divine sovereignty, Israel did not repent at the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they needed something greater, something that God had planned to do later after Jesus suffered and paid the penalty for our sin. And so John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah and they persecuted him. And Malachi, even if you go back to that Malachi passage, Malachi implied that the land would be cursed if repentance didn't happen. Remember that passage again. And he, Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And so when the first Elijah, John, came, there wasn't this mass turning to the extent that was necessary. And so all that is left now for Israel at that time is this decree of utter destruction, which of course did happen, and even Israel is still under God's judgment to this day. But they're awaiting that future restoration like we talked about, and Jesus tells us then that just like his forerunner, just like John, so too he would suffer at their hands. He would die for our sins. And so Elijah came in the form of John But the restoration didn't happen. John was killed and Jesus would be killed as well. But after the resurrection, both Elijah and Jesus, the Messiah, will return. And everything that God has promised will be fulfilled. Well, in closing then, I want to just share a thought from a couple of verses. This one is from Malachi as well. Malachi 3 and verse 2. Speaking about about the day of the Lord... It says, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? And Revelation chapter 6 verses 15 to 17 very similarly say this, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the day of their wrath has come and who can stand this morning we've kind of just ever so briefly looked at the day of the lord not so much the negative side of it but remember malachi spoke of it as a day when the wicked would be set ablaze that they would be judged for their sin. It's the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, and it's a day of wrath for the wicked. And when we think about that day and, and, and the, the people come to that day, they say, who can stand? Who can stand the wrath of God? 
And so when we think about that tribulation time, that, that day of the Lord that is coming, before the restoration of Israel, the, the difficult day, the, the, the worst day on the face of the world, everyone confesses, everyone, small and great, says, who can stand? We, we would, we, oh, that we could die and not face this day. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters and friends here today, hell is even worse than that. And so today I want to just let you know that the only salvation, the only way to escape the wrath to come and all of these terrible things that are going to happen in the world is through the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we can stand in the day of God's wrath is if we are standing in the Lord Jesus Christ and depending on Him for our salvation. And so if you're here today and you haven't come to Jesus Christ, you haven't trusted in Him for righteousness and for the forgiveness of your sins, then I would urge you to come to Him now before it's too late because this day of the Lord could come any day. It could come this afternoon while we're enjoying our FOSPA dinner. The Lord could come. The day of the Lord could come. There's nothing that we're waiting for. This day could come at any time. And so we need to be ready by being in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just pray for any that are here today that aren't in Christ, we pray that you would save them and have mercy on them. We thank you for your mercy in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your, your great plan to save the world, to bring it back through the chosen people that you have, have chosen Israel. And we thank you that, that we ourselves have been grafted into all of these blessings by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.